Once again, let's turn in our copies of the scripture to Mark chapter 15. At the risk of overwhelming you with a repetition of the reading of the scene, I'm going to read it again nonetheless. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 14. But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now this morning... As we read this portion of Mark 15, I noted early that Christ truly did suffer. Both Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews violently rejected the messianic anointing and the kingship of Jesus. Now having said that, the suffering of Jesus merely at the hands of men is a perspective far too shallow when we consider the events of Calvary. That's what we discussed this morning. I'll briefly recap this. If we only see our Lord's suffering without perceiving its great necessity and purpose, we miss wonderful truths communicated by the Holy Scriptures, which are meant to be a blessing to those who are the beneficiaries of the suffering of Jesus. That's you, brethren, who believe in him. At best, the unbelieving world reduces the suffering of Jesus to a meaningless tragedy, but to those of us who are being saved by the efficacy of his sacrificial death, 
the suffering of the Lord communicates a wealth of benefit. I reminded you of that this morning when I read to you Mark 8.31. I reminded you that in teaching his disciples about his messianic calling, Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Emphasis on the words must suffer. Now so far we've looked at several other scriptural passages declaring and teaching the necessity of Christ's suffering and noting that clear scriptural teaching uh, we've been asking this question. Why? Why was it necessary for the Christ to suffer? This morning we started by looking at what one might call the broader ontological or metaphysical answer to that question, noting that Christ suffered as a witness to the character of God, the, the, vera- the verity of God, his truthfulness and his dependability, the certainty of his word and prophecy, the foundation of our covenant, of uh, the gracious covenant of redemption that he offers to us. God had given his word, his solemn promise that the Christ would suffer, and thus the prophecies of the suffering Messiah were more than merely predictive. They were decretive and declarative. And what God decreed and declared through his prophets, we noted that he fulfilled. Christ, therefore, had to suffer these things as the sacrificial victim so that God's truthfulness and the certainty of his decree might be revealed and known. Now, having noted the necessity of Christ's suffering from a decretive perspective and noting what it reveals of the verity of God, we also looked at what Scripture declares of the necessity of Christ's suffering from a redemptive perspective. Christ had to suffer vicariously in the place of the redeemed so that the chastisement for our peace would fall upon him. He had to suffer because our iniquity was laid upon him and the just sentence of God's wrath against us was fulfilled in the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ in our place. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And now we're caught up to where we left off answering our question earlier. Why was it necessary? Why is it necessary that Jesus had to suffer? And thank you for your patience as I recapped that. Let's start by noting that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer so that his righteous suffering might be imputed to the redeemed. What do I mean by that? Not only was it necessary for Jesus to suffer in the flesh so that God's judgment against sin might be borne by him vicariously for us, but also so that his suffering might be accounted to us as righteousness. Now, how so? How does Christ's suffering, you might ask, relate to our righteousness? Good question. Glad you asked. Christ's suffering demonstrated his obedience And in learning obedience, he perfected righteousness through perfect obedience. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 5.8 says the following. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. As a man, as the second Adam, Christ learned obedience by living in perfect submission to the Father while he was a man living on the earth. He learned obedience, we might say, existentially, or as the Puritans would say, experimentally. And that experience of living in obedience to the Father was at times accompanied with suffering. The suffering of obedience came when, for example, he was obedient to the Father, even to his death. 
Philippians 2.4, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, on a cross. From Paul's declaration here in Philippians, we learn that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, so that in suffering, the Son of Man would demonstrate that he knew the cost of obedience, but was obedience nonetheless. He was obedient nonetheless. The writer of Hebrews speaks of Christ's learned and demonstrated obedience at the cost of suffering in terms of perfection. In Hebrews 2.10 we read these words, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now here the writer of Hebrews is in agreement with Paul in what he says to the church at Philippi. Christ's suffering proves that he is the perfect redeemer of his people. We are saved because Christ has perfectly fulfilled the conditions of God's gracious covenant of redemption, and he perfectly fulfilled those conditions through obedient suffering. He always did the Father's will, even at the cost of suffering. And for this reason, his suffering became the proof of his dedication to and his love for the Father. Think of the cost to the Son of God to be made a little lower than the angels, to set aside the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. Think of the suffering he experienced in being constantly present to experience sin in the men and the women and the children around him. He suffered indignities not worthy, we said, of his inestimable worth and station. We said that earlier. But all of that suffering was so that he might obediently fulfill the will of his Father. The suffering of Christ is so intricately connected to his obedience that he even had to suffer being tempted to, trans- tempted to transgress the law. He had to suffer that temptation for the sake of perfect obedience. And again, the writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He suffered when tempted, brethren. He was driven by the Spirit of God to be tempted by Satan into the wilderness. And he suffered. Listen to the first temptation recorded in Matthew 4, 1 through 3. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Do you hear the temptation? Do you see the suffering? Notice, first of all, that obedience to the Father caused Jesus to suffer material want. He suffered exposure and hunger and thirst. He was brought near to death so that the needs of his body would cry out and the temptation of Satan, command these stones to become bread, so that that temptation would have teeth. He bore that painful temptation alone. And no doubt he suffered loneliness. In Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, Satan's temptation reaches a crescendo of calculated enticement. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. So even greater than suffering want was Christ's suffering when he was presented with the potential, a tantalizing potential, a very tempting escape from the future horror of Calvary. 
Far greater was his anguish of soul when tempted with a way to potentially avoid bearing the the weight of countless sins, brethren, to potentially avoid bearing the terrible wrath of God for the imputed sins of his people, to potentially avoid the horror of the abandonment of his father. That's suffering, brethren. Suffering that we can't even fully comprehend, not being the divine person of the Son. Yet he learned obedience through suffering, and he proved his righteous allegiance to the Father when terribly tempted, yet without sin. Now what am I saying, excuse me, what am I saying when I collectively consider all of these observations about the suffering of Jesus Christ? I'm simply pointing out to us that Scripture declares that Christ's suffering was necessary for the perfect demonstration of his righteous standing before the Father. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer so that his perfect righteousness might be indisputably established. He suffered so that his righteousness would be presented to the Holy Father without contest. Now, before I present application for us regarding the scriptural teaching of the necessity for Christ to suffer, to learn obedience, there's another closely connected reason here for his suffering, and it concerns us. In Hebrews 4.15 and 16, the writer of the letter says the following about Christ's experience of temptation to sin. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews has declared that it is for our sake that Christ suffered temptation. Not only was it necessary for Christ to be tempted to test his faithfulness and his obedience to the Father, but it was also necessary that he suffer under temptation so that he would experience what we experience when we suffer under temptation. He needed to experience temptation as we experience it so that he would be able to be a sympathetic mediator between us and God. Because Christ has truly experienced the painful existential affliction of temptation because of that. When we go to God for help and mercy and grace to deal with temptation righteously, we have an intercessor, Jesus Christ, who knows exactly what we face, why we need help. Christ necessarily suffered the devil's temptation, which is real spiritual torment to the righteous, so that we might be the greater beneficiaries of his heartfelt willingness to help us when we face temptation. Temptation as he once faced. He knows what it's like. He understands the struggle of the flesh against the spirit. He's experienced the power of Satan's lies and sly arguments. And he experienced all of that so that his people coming to him for help would discover that they have an advocate before the Father who understands their weakness. Now, let's try to apply all of this together. How do we apply the doctrine of the necessity of Christ's suffering for the sake of obedience? Well, the application of this aspect of the doctrine of the necessity of Christ's suffering could occupy, again, another sermon. But for the sake of time limits, let's look at two applications of this doctrine. Now our question is this. It's changed slightly. How does the suffering of Christ inextricably linked to his obedience matter to me? How does the knowledge of that doctrine affect my life? 
First, let's work to apply the doctrine of the necessity of Christ's suffering from the perspective that he had to learn obedience for our reconciliation to God. We're now looking at the doctrine of the necessity of Christ's suffering from a perspective of vicarious, or if you prefer, substitutionary redemption. Brethren, the fact that Christ has suffered to learn obedience has reconciling significance to it. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that you and I were once alienated from God. But Christ suffered to learn obedience so that we might be brought near in peace to the Father, so that we might be considered obedient people in Christ Jesus. Listen for a moment to what Paul says to the Gentile church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 2, 12 through 18, he says the following. Remember, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. He's speaking to Gentiles, so this has even deeper meaning. Not only the spiritual, but materially they were separated. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's our reference to his suffering. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both, both Jew and Gentile, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's reconciliation. If you need a passage that explains the doctrine of reconciliation, brethren, that has to be it. Peace and being brought near to God and reconciliation and an end to alienation as lawbreakers. That's what Christ's vicarious suffering, suffering in our place to learn obedience, produced for his people. Because Christ has proven obedient even under the most painful of requirements, you who are saved through faith in his suffering and death have been reconciled to God because he lives as an obedient Savior forever for you. You've been brought near to God in a permanent state of friendship and peace with him because Christ's obedient suffering has been accredited to you if you believe. Believer, this means that not only is there no condemnation for you because Christ bore your sins in his own body on the tree, but you are also not condemned because Christ now stands in your place and always stands in your place before the Father presenting your perfect obedience. Before the Father, you are regarded as a faithful and obedient son or daughter because Christ suffered to prove himself obedient for you. What does this mean? Well, brethren, it means you can lift up your head. This means that you don't carry shame with you when you come before the Father in prayer. This means that though you are of unclean lips and you do dwell in the midst of an unclean people, you stand before the Father cleansed in his sight and purified and covered with the perfect sanctified obedience of Christ. You may boldly approach the throne of grace. You may claim every possible blessed benefit available from the Father for His children 
because Christ suffered to learn obedience for you. Now, if you come to the throne for forgiveness, this means you'll be regarded by God as if you had never sinned. If you come to Him for fellowship, if you come to receive the blessing of His countenance smiling upon you, you will be received as His friend and child. When on your last day, your body dies and your soul passes into heaven to appear before His throne, it will be a throne of grace and mercy, not a throne of judgment because of the obedience of Christ which He suffered to learn for you. The obedience of Christ which he suffered to learn for you, for you is your imputed character and image in the sight of God. That's a remarkable thought. This is sufficient reason, Christian, for you to never neglect to come to your father. If you want an application, never neglect to come to your father. It's more than sufficient reason for you to fear your father with a terrible admiration and enter into his presence with rejoicing, but never to fear your father with the terror of the wicked to hide from his presence. You no longer are like Adam and Eve hiding in the thicket of the garden when you hear the Spirit of God coming because you're no longer naked. You're clothed in Christ's obedience which he suffered in order to learn for you. This is the glorious offer of the gospel to every creature. If men and women and children will but repent of their sin and turn to this Savior to receive the benefits of the suffering of Christ, they'll be reconciled to God. This is a promise of enmity with God set aside for fellowship with Him because of what Christ suffered. Let's now take a moment to work to apply the doctrine of the necessity of Christ, Christ remaining obedient while suffering temptation to become sympathetic to the weakness of his people. Let's think about that for a moment. Jesus Christ knowingly and willingly suffered temptation. He was tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. Why? So that you could have a Savior who truly is your elder brother, as Scripture names him. He knows what it's like to live in this world. He knows what it's like to experience strong physical desire. He knows what it's like to wrestle against temptations of the flesh and the devil. He knows what it feels like to stand on the precipice of a scary decision and do what is right, even though you know you'll suffer for it. He knows what it's like to suffer for the sake of obedience and resist the temptation to sin. And because of that, you may be assured that he is ready and willing to provide abundant help so that you will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You may overcome temptation because Christ is ready to help you do so. And he knows how to help you face it from personal experience. You should always be ready to take every sin, every weakness, every temptation, every wicked desire, every perverse longing, every confusion of conscience, every wound from Satan to him because he suffered what you suffer and far worse. Why would we not go to such a savior for help dealing with sin and temptation when he's so knowledgeable on the subject, when he's so willing to deliver us from sin and he's so powerful to accomplish that deliverance. It's folly to neglect so great a salvation. Let's also recognize not only, not only Christ's willingness to deliver us, which is 
born from his experience of suffering temptation, let's also recognize that our Lord succeeded in overcoming temptation. When he suffered temptation, he didn't fall to it. He emerged from that suffering the clear victor. Satan had no power over him. The weakness of the flesh never overcame him. In witnessing our Lord suffer temptation, you may have confidence that he's able to help you master it because he's proven himself to be the master of temptation. And that leads me to another reason for which Scripture declares that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer so that we might be freed from the power of sin. In Christ's suffering, we're told he learned obedience. We've already discussed that. But that learning of obedience is not a merely passive accomplishment that's imputed to his people. That suffering to learn obedience is an active reality in the lives of God's people. The benefit of that suffering to learn obedience is an active reality in the lives of God's people. That active, obedient character of the Lord Jesus is one of the benefits which his necessary suffering has acquired for you. The Apostle Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 4.1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter is making it clear that the suffering of Christ in the flesh has a real necessary outcome in the lives of believers. They, like him, cease from sin. He provides both the power and the model which we follow in breaking with sin and learning obedience. Now, I'm not speaking, understand, I'm not speaking of a perfect sanctification earthside. I'm talking about sanctification active in the lives of believers, overcoming sin. Again, Peter says it in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. The suffering of Christ, Peter says, was necessary, so that we would see how he denied the flesh, and lived in obedience to the will of his Father. It was necessary for Christ to suffer so that we would note that suffering and by God's grace, by the renewing, sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit, walk even as he walked. He suffered death so that the very power of sin over his people would be broken in his death. Paul communicates that truth to the church at Philippi when he says the following in Philippians 3.10. Listen that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Do you hear what the, apostle, the apostles are declaring to us? Not only was the suffering of Jesus necessary to remove guilt, but also its power over his people. He suffered to sanctify his people. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Pretty clear, isn't it? He suffered outside the gate, the writer of Hebrews says. Picture that. The sacrifice. Put yourself in the camp of Israel in the desert. Put yourself in Jerusalem, perhaps. The sacrifice taken outside the gates of Jerusalem 
It's a, it's a memorial. It's a practice like the sacrifice taken outside the camp of Israel in the desert. Visualize the removal of that sin spatially, but understand it spiritually. Christ suffered outside the gate, on Calvary, well outside the city, outside the camp. He took our sin upon Himself outside and away from the congregation of the elect so that it would not only be removed from us legally, but also practically. Brethren, I am simply saying that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer so that you may be sanctified. And that your sanctification is not only regarded by the Father as accomplished in Christ, certainly it is, but it's also presently being accomplished in the way you live. Christ suffered so that sin would no longer have dominion over you. Brethren, let's apply this truth simply and directly. Christ has not suffered in vain. We said that this morning, didn't we? He has not suffered so that his people remain unsanctified. That's an absurdity. This has never been God's declaration of himself that he proceeds without accomplishing his will. That's nonsense. When you read of God's judgment against Israel, for example, in the middle of the book of Ezekiel, amidst all of that judgment poured out against the people of God, it's easy to see that judgment was intended to punish wickedness. At Calvary, as we see the sin and the wickedness of the elect punished by the Father in Christ Jesus, our observation of that terrible wrath, its impact on the Son, it teaches us something. It teaches us to reject sin. I'll explain how I'm connecting that to Ezekiel in a moment. When we see what Christ suffered, that God did not spare His own Son, because our wickedness was so great, so offensive, that also teaches us to repent of sin. In Ezekiel 14, at the end of a declaration of God's judgment against Israel and Jerusalem, we read these words. For thus says the Lord God, How much more, when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you'll be consoled for the disaster that I've brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I've brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord. The judgment of God, the wrath of God poured out upon Christ so that you, brethren, would be sanctified, called out so that God would see your ways, the way you live, and be consoled. I'm pointing that passage out to you to help make reference to the sanctifying purpose of the suffering of Jesus Christ. He bore the wrath of God and the judgment of the thrice holy so that some would be brought out of judgment and their ways and their deeds would be different. God's intended purpose in the suffering of Jesus is revealed in the scriptures in the repentant and the holy lives of the elect. It was necessary, therefore, that the Christ should suffer so that you, brethren, would live lives of obedience before God. The application of this reason for the necessity of Christ's suffering is fairly easy to get a hold of, isn't it? This time the cookies are on the lower shelf. Christ suffered death for us. By faith, we know that we died with him. 
Doesn't our baptism declare that as well? Isn't that what it pictures? If we died with him, so that the deeds of the flesh have also died in Christ Jesus, then brethren, we're being told we've died to sin. Therefore, sin no longer has dominion over us. This is Paul's point in Romans 6. Paul, why does sin no longer have dominion over me? Answer that question, please, Paul. Why should sin not reign in my life? Why should I live righteously? Answer, Romans 6, 6 through 14. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. There's the application from Paul as to what it means practically in our lives that Jesus suffered and died. It means that we have been freed from the dominion of sin. Therefore, brethren, live holy and obedient lives. Present your body as a living sacrifice. With the grace that you've received in Jesus Christ, live in such a way that you use your material body and all of this material life and its resources as tools of righteousness. The application is clear. Christ suffered and died necessarily so that we might necessarily enjoy the benefit of the outcome of his suffering. What benefit? Power over sin. So brethren, I'm simply exhorting you to live in exercise of that benefit, which is yours. It's yours in Christ Jesus. And if you do that, you'll glorify Christ. Now that leads me to the last reason that we'll look at today for the necessity of Christ's suffering. It was necessary for Christ to suffer so that he might be glorified, and in his glorification, so that the Father might also be glorified. We might say that this is the capstone reason for all of the suffering of Jesus Christ. It's for the glory of God. Jesus suffered so that he would be glorified by the Father, and simultaneously, so that in his being glorified by the Father, Jesus might also glorify the Father with his restored glory, the glory he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. In Hebrews 2.9, we read these words, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. How do we see him? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Why has Jesus been lifted up and enthroned at the right hand of majesty, crowned with glory and honor? Answer, Hebrews 2.9, because of the suffering of death. It was the suffering of Christ which resulted in his glorification. In Philippians 2, 8-11, the apostle Paul explains it this way. <clears throat> Excuse me. And being found in human form... 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Why? Because he humbled himself. He suffered that humiliation. He suffered death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here the suffering of Jesus Christ is presented by the apostle as the very basis for his exaltation by the Father. It's exactly correct to say, therefore, that it was necessary for Christ to suffer so that he would be glorified. When we see the suffering of Jesus and we understand that suffering redemptively, the glory of God is revealed in ways that the imagination of man could never produce. How so? Well, we see the glory of God in his righteousness and justice and wrath poured out against sin, don't we? We see the glorious grace and the love of God in his condescending sacrificial goodness to the creature. We see the glorious perfection of righteousness in the Son, the excellency of His person and nature expressed in His sufferings. And finally, we will literally see Him gloriously enthroned in heavenly places. We're going to see that. Our eyes. My eyes will see that and not another. We'll eventually see the Lord Jesus Christ as he appeared in the transfiguration, we'll eventually see the Lord Jesus. We'll witness every knee bowing. We'll hear every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. Through suffering, Jesus has received the crown and glory, and he has therefore glorified the Father. Jesus once prayed in John 12, 28. You know this verse, verse, brethren. Father, glorify your name. To which the Father replied, I have glorified it. I will glorify it. Now, how did that happen? It happened when Christ suffered at Calvary, brethren. It continues. Don't don't mistake what I'm saying. But it happened in a real monumental way when Christ suffered at Calvary. In John 17, 1, as Jesus reflected on the imminent arrival of his suffering at Calvary, he said, Father, the hour has come Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. There it is. He necessarily glorified the father and received glory in that suffering. Now here we arrive at the final application for us. When we consider the glory that the suffering of Jesus Christ accomplished, what does that mean? How does that hit home where the rubber meets the road? Well, the final application, I think, is Romans 8.17. Romans 8.17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's the advantage. There's the benefit. As beneficiaries of Christ's suffering, we have also been entitled as inheritors along with him, even inheritors of glory. Now, I'll confess right up front. I haven't the faintest idea what I'm talking about. Not really. Because I've not yet fully experienced it. I have a taste of it. A little bit of the image of Christ in me. God has graciously provided out of the immeasurable abundance of his love and goodness that we who are saved through Christ's suffering, 
We are saved to enjoy with him the glory, which is the reward of his suffering. Now, this is different from the divine glory which Christ enjoyed from time immemorial with the Father. Make no mistake, there is a glory that belongs to the thrice holy God alone. Nevertheless, don't diminish in your mind the significance of the excellency of the glory that Christ has secured for his people through his suffering. We don't deserve it. We have no inherent claim to it. Rather, we have merited judgment. But such is the excellency of Christ's suffering for his people that it nets us, first of all, eternal life. Resurrection to glory. It also makes us fellow heirs with Jesus. Hebrews 2.10 For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was that perfect, perfect suffering of Christ that benefited us, bringing us to glory. Our salvation has been made perfect, complete, irremovable, and everlasting through Christ's suffering. And that salvation brings us as adopted children to glory. This is the outcome of Christ's suffering for you. For those who believe and are saved by grace through faith in the efficacy of Christ's suffering in their place, they receive the glory that's promised in heavenly places. This gives us great hope. It gives us joy as we expectantly look forward to all that we will one day enjoy. And for eternity, brethren, you have a hope and a confidence even at the worst of times in this life because you know that the suffering of Christ necessarily secured a heavenly inheritance for you. Keep that thought foremost in your mind, especially these times in which we live, brethren. Times of discouragement. Times of great wickedness. Redeem that the time that's been given to you. Redeem it by keeping that thought foremost in your mind. Forgetting the things that are behind. Remember that Christ suffered and died and is now risen and enthroned in glory so that you may soon fully enjoy the upward call of Jesus Christ. It's begun in you. You're experiencing that glory now. Even now. I know you know the golden chain. Even now you're experiencing that. Every promise is a yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And the day is soon approaching when you'll experience the fulfilled enjoyment of those precious and great promises. Every one. And in the meantime, you have already become partakers of glory. Really? How so? Peter says it in 2 Peter 2, 3-7. through Listen to what Peter tells us. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Peter just tied our sanctification into godliness. He tied it into glory. And I'm speaking of sanctification actively in our lives at this moment. That's 
currently tied to glory. Peter's words are my last exhortation to you. Remember that we already said that Christ suffered and died for our sanctification. That sanctification is exactly what Peter's talking about when he speaks of glory and excellence and becoming partakers of the divine nature. It's the image of God restored in man, the image of Christ in you. The image of God that was ruined at the fall is currently being restored in you. Brethren, that's glorious. It will one day finally and fully be restored. That is presently enjoying glory, which will one day be completely enjoyed and fulfilled. Now, since Christ's suffering has secured your present enjoyment of this glory, namely, you're a partaker of Christ's own nature, live that way. That's my final exhortation. Live that way. Live as Peter has exhorted you to live and as I exhort you now. Since you have become glorious partakers of the nature of Christ, and since he has suffered to free you from the power of sin, for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Live in the glory that Christ has purchased for you by his suffering. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Father, what a task has been set before us by Christ and by his apostles. Innumerable brethren, currently enjoy and glory with you the glory that we one day look forward to being fulfilled in us. But even now, Father, we know that you are working in us through your Spirit. You have purchased us by the blood of your Son, and you will not let the life that has become new in us, that's been renewed in us, you'll not let that life decay. We praise you and thank you for that. And so we pray, Lord, as we have considered today the excellency of the subject of Christ's suffering, Lord, that we would consider all that it has purchased for us and not set aside that it is purchased for us to live in this world even as he lived, to walk even as he walked. Holy Father, we ask, for the sake of Jesus Christ, renew the image of the Son in us. Renew it, Father, day by day. We know as you have promised, it's being renewed in the image of its Creator, and we look forward to that day, Lord, when we will one day see the Lord Jesus with our own eyes and we'll stand before him clothed in his righteousness, fully renewed in that image of God, which was marred at the fall, fully renewed, now restored, Christ in us. Father, that's the hope of glory for us. We pray, Father, that you would bring us all to that hope. We know you will. You've promised that none shall be taken from your hand. So hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.